new with us today. We're glad uh, that you're here to worship our God with us. We have a, a meal plan, like uh, Rob said. It sounds like we've got some ribs for it. after service. We'd love a chance to uh, meet with you there, maybe uh, continue this conversation about uh, Jesus that we've started uh, this morning. Last month, we celebrated Valentine's Day, and I wanted to share uh, a few quotes that I saw by, by children talking about what that day made them feel like and, and about love uh, in general. Glenn, age seven, said, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell well, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. Tom, age five, once I'm in kindergarten, I'm going to settle down and find a wife. <laughs> Kenny, age seven, it gives me a headache to think about that kind of stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Regina, age seven, I'm not rushing into love. Fourth grade, it's hard enough. <laughs> and Manuel, age eight, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something. That sounds pretty painful, uh, but then it's supposed to get easier. Uh, and it sounds like uh, these kids, Manuel here, he tapped into something. And all these kids, they've probably been listening a little too closely to their parents, but uh, they seem to sense, even at the, the ripe age of, of five to eight, that looking for love or companionship or, or friendship, that can be a painful experience. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the painful side of love, the dark side of uh, affection. Today, we're going to discuss this painful experience we know as loneliness. Uh, recent, I'll skip through. A recent YouGov poll said up to four out of ten Americans admit to have having frequent feelings of intense loneliness, or they say that they are always lonely. That's forty percent of people. A poll of millennials found thirty percent said that they had no close friends to turn to when they needed to talk to someone. The highest of all the generations they studied, followed closely by those aged over 75. Two-fifths of people over the age of 75 said the TV is their only company that they have. Teens are also increasingly isolated and depressed and suicidal. And when I was looking at all of this, one quote from one of the researchers, a psychologist, stood out to me. He said, as long as we then do what we should do, reconnect with people, then loneliness, it can be a good thing. It becomes a bad thing when it becomes chronic. That's when the health effects kick in and it becomes harder and harder to connect with other people the longer you're in that state of loneliness. You know, loneliness, that is our mind's trigger that we need to reach out to people, that we need to find companionship. And when we successfully do that, it can be a good thing. But even though we are now living in the most connected time in human history, we're finding it harder and harder to do that. But that's not the way things should be. You see, God promises to heal us of our loneliness. Psalm uh, 68.6 says that God sets the lonely and families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in sun-scorched land. God, he sets the lonely and families. He seeks to heal us of, of these feelings of isolation. And why would he do that? Why would God commit himself to the task of helping the lonely? Why? Well, because God knows that loneliness is not a good thing. He declares in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, of course, that's not to say that God's people haven't been lonely throughout history. Giants of faith like Jacob and Moses and 
uh, Job, Nehemiah, uh, Jeremiah, uh, they all have their times of loneliness. David once cried out to God, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted, Psalms 25, 16. Paul, uh, as we read at the end of his life, some uh, had forsaken him and he pleaded with Timothy to make every effort to come to me soon in 2 Timothy 4. And of course, Jesus cried out on the cross, the most lonely comment of all, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, being religious doesn't mean that we won't ever be lonely. And being lonely doesn't mean that we're somehow being punished for our sins. It doesn't mean that we're suffering for our lack of faith. But the fact of the matter is, if you've ever experienced loneliness, you know you don't ever want to feel like that again. You, you don't ever want to experience the, the emptiness, the feelings of rejection, the isolation ever again. And the good news is God says he doesn't want us to experience that either. That's why in Genesis 2, God declared it isn't good that man should be alone. So what does the Bible say can be done about this? What is the cure to our loneliness? And, and this is woven all throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end about why we no longer have to be lonely because God is in the picture. Right from the very beginning, we're told the first place we should look for healing to our emptiness, our isolation, is to God. But that isn't generally how it's done. That's not how we like uh, to do it very often. The first place people look for the answer to their emptiness is where? Somebody else, right? We look for somebody else to bring them in our lives. If we could just get somebody else into our lives, then we wouldn't be lonely anymore. And so there's this constant struggle to find that somebody so we won't be by ourselves anymore. That's why uh, you see these dating apps. They're so popular now. You've got to find somebody else and then you won't be lonely. But allow me to let you in on a secret. That's not how it works. Finding someone else is not the solution to our loneliness. Finding someone else is not the cure to our loneliness. There are women who will find that special somebody hoping that he will be the one who keeps them from being lonely, only to end up in marriages where they feel more isolated than before. There are men who will chase that special somebody, only to end up with someone who disconnects them from everyone else. And there are those who feel like they've snagged that perfect somebody, only to have their lives torn apart by divorce in a few short years. You see, finding somebody else is not the solution to loneliness, and it's not the cure for emptiness. Not just emptiness, not just anyone is going to fill the need that we know uh, and God knows is in our hearts. You know, right in the very beginning, Genesis 2 points this out for us. You know, look at Genesis chapter 2 with me, if you have your Bible open. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there is not a, uh, found a helper comparable to him. So what was the first thing that God did? He said, Man is not alone, or should not be alone. And then what did he do? Well, he started creating animals and birds, and he, he takes them and parades them in front of Adam and says, Adam, name these for me and see if you find a helper somewhere in the mix. Now, 
did God know that these animals would not be suitable helpers for Adam? Of course he did. And did he know that his next creation, Eve, was going to be that comparable helper? Of course he did. God knew all of that. But Adam didn't through this process. And once Adam knew that there was no suitable helper around that he could find, God did something miraculous. God changed something in Adam's life. God created a miracle to fill the loneliness in Adam's life. And you see, the solution to Adam's loneliness was not somebody else. Granted, uh, it turned out that Eve was the fulfillment of his needs, but Eve was the solution to Adam's need because God made her that way. Adam, he didn't need somebody to fill his loneliness. He needed to learn to trust God to deal with his loneliness in his time and in his way. And that's the lesson that we learn right from the very first pages of Scripture. The cure to loneliness starts with God. And now, if we turn through our pages a little bit, right, to uh, where we are in our weekly Bible reading, if you're following along with that, we come to Joshua. And Joshua, he was faced with a choice, a choice uh, that could leave him alone, at least in the sight of the world. He tells his people they've got to shape up. Joshua 24, 15, it says, uh, Joshua's telling the people, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in, the, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua, he understood what he needed to do. He needed to serve God even if no one else was doing it. You understand what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm not afraid to be alone as you understand loneliness. And I think it's because after all of this time, he remembered the promises God gave him in the first chapter of Joshua. Starting in verse 5, the Lord tells Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage for to this people. You shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And then in verse 9, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, the Hebrew name Joshua, it's the same uh, meaning as the name Jesus, the Lord saves. And that's why even though this uh, promise here was said directly to Joshua, we know it also applies to us today. And Hebrews 13.5 assures us that is true. God has told us through Jesus, never will I leave you nor forsake you. We, we don't have to be lonely. You know, Joshua, he not only believed those words, he lived them out. In fact, he lived them even uh, before this moment, and that's why he was in this position. He didn't worry about what others thought. You know, he did the right thing, even if he had to be all alone. And this knowledge that God would never leave him nor forsake him made it so that he was able to stand alone because he knew he truly never was all by himself. He didn't concern himself with what others would do. He did the right thing. He didn't try to find the answer to loneliness in himself or what he could do, or if he could find somebody else, he trusted God and he relied on him. And right in the middle of this passage, the Lord told him in verses 7 through 8, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The Lord said to Joshua, I'm not going to leave you, but you have to rely on me. You have to obey me. You have to keep my law, even when it seems unreasonable, even when everyone else abandons you because you're keeping my law. Just like with Adam, the cure to Joshua's loneliness was not his ability to do anything. It was his faith in God's ability. Now, if we uh, keep skimming through the Bible, we go through, got to skip through some for time, but we go through people like Job and Nehemiah and uh, Elijah and others, all people who struggled uh, with loneliness. And then we land in Isaiah. And God there declares an answer to our loneliness with one simple name that we know very well, Emmanuel, God with us. And that name, that was God's declaration that we would never truly have to be alone. You know, we read this uh, section, we know the prophecy well, talking about Emmanuel. It was uh, given under uh, specific circumstances that we may not be as familiar with. Under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Israel had uh, split in two. The northern half was Israel, and the southern half was this tiny state of Judah. It remained loyal to uh, the dynasty of David, and that was where the old capital of Jerusalem was. And Syria and Israel had attacked Jerusalem. They'd failed to conquer it, and Ahaz, the king of Judah, was terrified. He didn't understand why this was happening, but Isaiah comes to him and he says, don't worry, this conquest that you fear, it's not going to happen. Instead, one of the two great superpowers of the ancient world, Assyria, is going to invade Syria and Israel and lay them waste. And Isaiah says the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria, Israel's capital, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. And he warns Ahaz that his job, like all of our jobs, is just to stay faithful to God. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. There's a, a certain ring to that. Maybe we, we hear uh, that, that same command given over and over throughout Scripture. It's going to be okay, just stick to God. And then Isaiah then prophesies that uh, a young woman within the royal bloodline would shortly marry and conceive, and her son would be called Emmanuel. And the prophecy stated that before the child was old enough to eat solid food, the Assyrians would lay waste to the lands of Aram and Israel, which they did uh, not even two years later. Now, all of that, that's just politics. That's just statecraft going on there. But it points to something so much greater. You know, Isaiah can dimly see in the, the history of God's dealing with Israel hints of something greater, hints of something far more significant. This act of rescue that God performs for his people in about 740 BC and the sign that he gave to his people that he would do that, that this boy Emmanuel would be born, that became a promise to the world that God would do that for those who relied on him. Emmanuel uh, wasn't the only child born with a, a symbolic name. Isaiah uh, had other uh, children, uh, two other sons, the, both of them were given symbolic names, but Mary's child, this Emmanuel that we know so well, he would be utterly and completely different. Emmanuel, born in 740 BC, would live and die just like 
everybody else. The only thing significant about him is his name and that he was foretold. But the Emmanuel born to Mary, he would be the savior of the world. Isaiah's promised Emmanuel will possess the land where all opponents appear in Galilee of the Gentiles and be a great light to those in the, sh- in the land of the shadow of death. Uh, he's the child, the son of God, uh, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, whose government and peace will never end as he reigns on David's throne forever. So that was Isaiah's turn to give us a picture of this. Then as we keep moving forward into Matthew, it becomes Matthew's turn to declare the Emmanuel. He says in chapter 1, verse 22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You know, when Jesus begins uh, his ministry, Matthew describes him as fulfilling all these prophecies of Isaiah's Emmanuel. Matthew sees Jesus' life as God making himself present with the people. God is with us, and God wants us to know that he is with us, and he's for us because of Jesus. And what what blessing could be greater than that? Jesus is the ultimate answer to our loneliness. The cure, it's not found in ourselves. It's not found in somebody else. It's found in God. And the way he does that, he heals us through Jesus. Now, we're here in the Gospels. There's one more person I want to focus on. You know, Luke writes uh, for us that it came to pass in, in these days uh, that Matthew was also talking about, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place uh, while Quinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up to Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Uh, I think there's some things in this passage that tell us that Mary was lonely too. For one thing, she didn't know Joseph very well because of the way they arrange marriages. Often the, the girl didn't know the guy uh, until they were married, certainly not very well. And so Mary, she might have felt alone with Joseph. But also these last words of the passage, there was no room for them in the end. Obviously, that's a, a lonely uh, experience, but it's even deeper than that. Why were they trying to go to the inn in the first place? You know, think about the, the circumstances here. The whole family had to come and be registered in Bethlehem. They all had to come together. And so why didn't they just go stay with a relative? And uh, maybe we could say, well, all, they all had their houses full. They couldn't host uh, Joseph and Mary. But then you ask, well, they, they just gave birth here. Why didn't any of the family come? There's no record of any of Joseph's family coming, certainly none of, of Mary's being there. Her family wasn't there for them. And I think Mary was in a very isolated position here. But she also shows us how we can handle that kind of isolation well. First, you look at uh, Mary, and and she shows us that if we are going to climb out of the valley of loneliness, we've got to forget the shortcuts. You know, conquering 
loneliness. It takes work, but it's worth it. And I, I actually think we have a clue about Mary's loneliness before this. When she finds out that she's pregnant, she leaves town, and she travels to a relative named Elizabeth that for some reason uh, she knows is going to take her in. And we don't know the details about her trip, but it wasn't easy for Mary to do that. It's probably the first time uh, she's traveled alone. Remember, she's pretty young. Uh, it would have been much easier to stay at home and, and sulk and, and feel sorry for herself, but she didn't. She took some action that would help her not feel lonely, even though her family had abandoned her. And this is easier said than done, but don't just sit around and feel sorry. You might need to find your own Elizabeth, a person who will welcome you. It might not be a relative. You might find someone else in a, a similar situation. It might be someone uh, who's hurting over the same loss or a similar loss as you, or it might be someone here in the church, you know, our spiritual family, when our physical family is not around. The easiest thing to do is just sit around and sulk. But Mary didn't do that, and I hope you won't either. But Mary also shows us that we need to do what is right, even if we don't feel like doing what is right. Do you think Mary might have been a little upset about this situation? She might have even been a little mad at God. You know, think about it. God told her, God went and told Joseph about this situation, but not before Joseph had entertained some pretty uncomforting thoughts about his fiance, right? Uh, let him think about it for a, a little while before God told him what was going on. Then God went and he told some shepherds, but he didn't tell anyone in her family. You know, Elizabeth got the point, but we have no evidence that uh, anyone else believed or even understood what was going on with Mary. Do you think that Mary might have wished that God had helped her out with her family just, just a little bit, that he gave them some clue of what was going on and that she needed people during this time. You know, the, we see here she may be hurting, she may be even a little mad, but she did the right thing. You know, Luke 2, 21 says, when the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of Moses, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You know, the sacrifice that they gave, uh, that was the one allowed by poor families, and so God gave them a mission, a job, a, a vision, but he didn't give them much to go on. He didn't dump a load of money into their lap. He didn't even tell them uh, what they really needed to do ahead of time. But because Mary did what was right, even if it went against how she was feeling at the time, she found encouragement. In the temple, she met a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna, both who gave them tremendous encouragement. They may not have felt like going, but by the time they left, I am sure they, glad, they are glad that they went. But Mary and Joseph, they were careful to do what is right. Luke 2, 39, it says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, and they had returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. They did 
what was required, and they continued doing what was required, even though they were probably struggling with this. But maybe the most important principle that we learn from Mary is to overcome loneliness by relying on God, just like Adam did, just like Joseph did, just like so many others throughout Scripture did. And I think that's part of the reason why we have the church here, a home for God on earth in each of us. And he gives us that so that we have this feeling of belonging and purpose. You know, whether you have a strong family or a dysfunctional family, there is always a family for you here. And with all honesty, the church, uh, sometimes we can be pretty dysfunctional at times too, but God still gives us this because he wants us to go through life together, working through that because we are bound together with something even stronger than our own blood. We are bonded with the blood of of Christ. So we have this group of people who understand that we don't have to go it alone anymore. There's this uh, statistic I told you about last week that one out of every five people uh, go to church, travel to church alone. Uh, you want to know why they did that? They did it so churches would know how many parking spaces they needed, right? Oh, well, if they travel together, maybe we can uh, save a little money on asphalt. But uh, it goes so much deeper than that. It gives us such a, a, a tremendous message. First, it tells me that there's at least 20% um, on average of people here who are struggling to find their place. They're struggling to, to find uh, family. And second, there's a big group of people outside of these walls who are lonely, who aren't here and need this news, this promise that God gave Adam and Joshua and Isaiah uh, and Mary and now to us that we don't have to go it alone. Just trust God. You know, Mary, she might not have understood what was going on. She might have been uh, a little angry at the situation, but she kept trusting. And what sounded so great to her when the angel told her about this, I'm sure turned eventually. And she began to doubt, uh, or she would be tempted to doubt uh, what she had been told. But her faith in God never wavered. You know, look at Another character in the story, Anna. I mentioned her a couple of minutes ago. Anna, she knew loneliness, but she used it to rely on her heavenly father. And in the account of Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to the temple, this is what we find out about her. It says in Luke 2.36, there is also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. So after just seven years of marriage, her husband died. And what did she do? She relied on God and God supplied. He gave her peace so that she was able to give thanks to him and trust his redemption. And maybe Mary learned something from that. Reading between the lines of the Gospels, it appears, at least to me, that at some point, Mary was also widowed. And we don't know for sure. The gospel, it's not about Mary, it's about Jesus. But Joseph disappears after they take Jesus to the temple when he was 12, and we never hear about him again. So how did Mary, not only the loneliness from her family, but maybe perhaps from Joseph as well, how did she handle that? You know, we don't have a lot of details, and we know that. Uh, but we do have a record of when she should have been at her lowest point, when her son uh, was hanging on the cross, how did she react? What was she doing? Uh, this is what John says in John 19.25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, that's Mary, 
his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You remember me saying none of the Mary's family was there for the birth. It wasn't that way at his death, though. I mean, we don't know her name. It doesn't matter her name, but those words, they matter a lot. Her mother's, his mother's sister. And perhaps because of the way Mary lived her life, at least one of her family came around. And she came around enough to want to be there with Mary at her lowest point, her toughest time. She missed the joy. She wasn't going to miss this, though. 33 years later, her sister is there. And stay in that scene. But let's leave Mary and her sister and focus on that middle cross. And was Jesus ever lonely? Just once, we're told. Matthew 27, 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus hung on that cross alone. The sin of the whole world turned his father's face away from him, and for a moment, he would be separated in death, forsaken. He was left there alone. Why? So we wouldn't have to be. It was the last time that anyone would have to feel that way. Some still do. We should know there are people still here who are are hurting, who are still lonely, but Jesus on the cross said, you don't have to be. Just trust God. Rely on him, obey him, and stop looking to fill that emptiness on your own or with someone else. Rely on God and said, that is the message woven throughout Scripture that culminates in this tremendous sacrifice on the cross. Give your life to Jesus. Walk away from your past. Allow yourself to be immersed in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. Rise up as someone reliant on God, just like Joshua, just like Mary, and so many others have been. That is the cure to loneliness. And that's what God is offering to us this morning. Don't go it alone anymore. So if you're ready to start relying on God, there's no better time than right now. Just come to the front of the room as we stand and as we sing.